0: There are certain promises that are given to us upon conditions. What are those promises? And what are those conditions? I want to read to you from Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. Colossians 1, verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what I say will be heard as you intend. Cleanse my tongue, that I will be your transparent instrument to say all that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Help me to be very, very clear, very, very simple. Let this be a life-changing word And a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On this Palm Sunday, I am reminded of the disciples and the way in which they perceived one thing before Palm Sunday and then the way down the road they perceived things. Uh, For example, before Palm Sunday and on Palm Sunday, they thought that Jesus, though they believed he was the Messiah, had come to overthrow Rome. And they were so excited and they were looking forward to this moment. But then their hopes were dashed when Jesus was crucified. They didn't know why he died. When he was raised from the dead, he didn't know why he was raised. And then after he appeared to them, They still didn't know why he had come. It wasn't until after the Holy Spirit came down that these disciples saw why he came. It's a situation, as Paul puts in this scripture tonight, you were, but now. And what we're going to look at tonight is how having said that all creation would be glorified. We're told that everything in heaven and on earth, uh, would be restored, the universe. And so he talks about creation. And then suddenly he turns to them. He says, and now you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. Well, you were, but now. Well, creation in fact, is what uh, includes the plants, the animals, the planets, the sun, but then saving grace refers to us, and it goes from creation, the general to the particular, and now you. Uh, Now this statement that I made at the beginning, there are certain promises that are given to us upon conditions. Uh, what are those promises? What are the conditions? Well, there's the promise of salvation, uh, and the condition is faith. Simon quoted John 3.16 a few minutes ago. Martin Luther called it the Bible in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. A promise based upon a condition, usually has the word if in it. Well, John 3.16 doesn't have an if, but it's implied because he says whoever believes in him should not perish. But then there is another set of promises in the New Testament, and these promises refer to our inheritance. Now, you've heard me say this more than once every christian is called to come into their inheritance some do some don't and an inheritance is given to us upon condition and that's why we have this verse 23 that i just read there are a lot of people when they read this their hopes are dashed they thought they were secure They thought they were going to go to heaven, and then they say to themselves, well, maybe not after all, because Paul talks about doing these things that God would present us before him. He adds these words, if indeed you continue in the faith. And that verse has been used uh, for centuries for those who don't believe you're eternally saved. Uh, when you profess faith in Christ, they say it is up to you uh, to finish well, and if you don't, you will go to hell. Well, how are we to understand this passage? Well, if it hadn't been for the fact that Paul mentioned inheritance already, uh, we would have to say, well, maybe there is something to this that you've got to continue, or you will lose what you had, and you will go to hell. But Paul said back in verse 12 that these Colossians have been qualified uh, for the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, to be qualified uh, doesn't mean you've got it. It just means you're qualified. You may be qualified for a job. That doesn't mean you're going to get the job. And uh, so when Paul says you've been qualified, it's because they have professed faith in Christ. And it was going so well. He said, I want you to continue to walk in a manner fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So there is a difference between sonship and inheritance. Uh, Some of you may recall that I had put it this way. There's a difference between being a person's son and then getting the inheritance or I was always my grandmother's grandson. Um, She was so proud of me at one time. She bought me a new car, and I was so proud of that car. And a person who witnessed her will told me that she was going to leave everything to me. But when it became apparent to her that I wasn't going to be in the denomination in which I was brought up and my theology had changed, She took the car back and (laughs) changed her will, and I inherited nothing. I was still her grandson. I was always my father's son. Now, he was uh, pleased with me. We had a little reconciliation, uh, but I have to say that when he died, uh, he left everything to his second wife, my stepmother, and uh, I received zero, but I was always his son. And so when you become a Christian, you become a child of God, you do not lose this. But there is such a thing as an inheritance, and it's based upon a condition that we continue to please the Lord. And as I said, that's precisely what these Colossians had been doing, and it was wonderful. Well, now, When he talks about being presented holy and without blame, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, is he possibly talking about how to get to heaven? Well, if so, that's not very good news. That means all of us here are still hoping somehow to get there. I want us to see two or three things about this passage that I just read. The first is pre-conversion state. Here's the way Paul puts it in verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Um, And he goes on to point out that they were outsiders. He says, uh, the truth is you were alienated. As a matter of fact, uh, when Paul wrote the same thing to the Ephesians, he said that uh, you have been alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel. Here's the way I would put it. If you were a Jew, because of your background, you felt in. But if you were a Gentile, you weren't in. And so, Paul is saying, that these Colossians were outsiders in two ways. First of all, when you were born, you did not know God. As a matter of fact, that would be true with a Jew as well. But a Jew had a head start because he had the law. He was brought up on the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law, uh, the civil law. And so he had a head start. Uh, But when it came to Gentiles, they knew nothing of this. Uh, not to mention the fact that they didn't know God. And so, do you know what it is like to be an outsider? Do you know what that's like? By the way, I, did you notice that tonight I was not introduced? <laughs> I'll tell you why. I knew you were wondering. This morning... Gordon Neal comes, he walks right up to the platform, reads a scripture, nobody introduced him. But week after week, somebody stands up here and introduces me or says something. And I thought, I turned to Amanda. I said, how come Gordon, he could just walk on up and start preaching? <laughs> well, you see, Gordon is an insider. He sees he's, he's Elam, he's, he's brought up, he's at home. And I just decided that I'm not going to be an outsider anymore. I have, as of now, I declare myself an insider. And, you know, Simon, when you come up, nobody introduces you. And I've been here longer than you have. An outsider uh, has to be introduced. Do you know the difference between an Englishman and a Scotsman? and an Irishman and a Welshman? (laughs) This is your lucky day, I'm going to tell you. Two Englishmen, two Scotsmen, two Irishmen, and two Welshmen were marooned on this island in the South Pacific and discovered two years later. Well, the two Scotsmen had formed a bank and were trading shells with each other. The two Welshmen had formed a choir and were singing. The two Irishmen had killed each other off in a fight. The two Englishmen were waiting to be introduced. No more introductions. I'm not English. The Gentiles knew nothing about God. They knew nothing about the Old Testament. And whereas the Jews were spoon-fed these things. And so Paul says, you were alienated completely away from God without hope of God in the world. In fact, you quoted that, uh, Gabe, just a few minutes ago as well. We're born that way without any hope in the world, without God. But in addition to that, there was a particular attitude they had. Paul says, hostile in mind. Well, that means what? They were hostile toward God. Men, women, by nature, hate God. You say, oh, Archie, I've always loved God. Well, that's because you like to think good of yourself. The truth is the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. This is before conversion, after conversion. You don't want to trust your heart You never outgrow the need to realize we are hostile by nature. This is why we're all congenitally opposed to holiness. God has to do something to get our attention. And so it's one thing to be an outsider, another thing to have a wrong attitude. And they were hostile toward God. Saul of Tarsus hated Jesus. He hated him. He was dedicated to killing Christians and doing everything he could to turn everybody away from Christianity. And not only were they hostile, their minds were blinded. In fact, it's a double blindness. First of all, by nature, you're blind. But on top of that, the God of this world has blinded. And something needs to happen by which their eyes would be open. Uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, preached a sermon called... Men, God's natural enemies. And it works the other way around. God is man's natural enemy. We just aren't in the same wavelength. And people hate God by nature. And this is the way we were before we were converted. Can you remember the time you didn't care about God? You didn't care about church? You didn't care anything about the Bible? Well, that was these collage that these Colossians, and now he says, you were this uh, alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. Now, this would refer to things such as sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Some people today would say there's no such thing. The truth is, any sexual activity outside heterosexual marriage the bible calls sin and it has always been sin it will always be sin the trouble with the church in a deep sleep will not call a spade a spade whether it is heterosexual sin an activity or homosexual sin activity and you say well it's not fair Uh, the truth is uh, this is what God says And we may not like it. This is why we're hostile. We don't think this makes sense. But the truth is, it's because we are blind. And we, by nature, hate God's word. And so doing evil deeds, you were. And not only that, that includes things such as witchcraft, uh, things that come from Satan. I wonder if you ever played with a Ouija board. Uh, Dangerous stuff. Don't do it. Chances are there's someone here, you follow your astrology chart and you think it's fun. Let's just see what it says I'm supposed to do today. Burn it, have nothing to do with it, it's of Satan. And when you're around people that are devoted to these things, you see, you were once at home with that, but now you've changed because the Christian faith changes lives, it changes people. And you can go into the same place where witchcraft was working, and you go in there covered by the blood of Christ, you'll find that the people don't want you. And they can't even do their demonic things because it makes that much of a difference. Well, pre-conversion state, doing evil deeds. But then Paul says, but now he is reconciled in his body of flesh By his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So it's just a reminder conversion to Christ changes lives. We saw this back in verse 13 that we've been translated from a kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But how did this happen? It is because, it's because. God stepped in, and we are reconciled in his body by his death. If you had been present just outside the city of Jerusalem on Good Friday, the sight would not have been a pretty sight. If you had walked into Jerusalem on Good Friday and said, what is God doing in Jerusalem today? they would reply, oh, it's Passover. It's Passover. And we want to get on with it if that awful person thing hanging on a cross would die so we could get on with Passover. You see, they were devoted to their tradition. They were blind to what was going on. And if you had been there and you actually saw the crucifixion, you wouldn't have known what was happening. There's an old uh, uh, spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? I can tell you, you could have been there and not discerned a thing. It was just a body, blood dripping. And what Paul is saying, that that body, that body, this flesh, the physical body, made a difference. You see, by saying this, he's saying two things. First of all, he shows how people are converted and how God stepped in, but he's letting the Gnostics, uh, they were the enemies of the day in Colossae and around that part of the world who said that God did not come in the flesh and there's no chance that God had a body that died, not, not a possibility. And Paul is saying this is exactly what has happened. And so the Gnostics could not fathom that God came in the flesh. It is, it is as though Paul is rubbing it in. God in the flesh really did become a man and died. And so uh, when you think of Palm Sunday, uh, when that happened, The same disciples and the same people that were cheering, we were told this morning, the whole crowd rejoicing because they thought that this man who had just raised Lazarus from the dead a few days ago, he is now going to turn Israel upside down. And their hopes were at a high level until he's hanging on a cross. And all his disciples, even the twelve, One betrayed him, one denied him, and the rest deserted him and fled. It was such an awful thing that happened. And it is as though Paul rubs it in, that God in the flesh really died. And that is what made the difference between the state when you were and now. And so the purpose of Christ's death is this, not only to reconcile creation, but to present us, and he puts it like this, that we would be holy. Now, I referred to holiness and sexual purity in the same breath. That isn't all there is to holiness, by the way. But it is a big part of it, so much so that when Paul said 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, he said, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication, sexual immorality. And so you cannot get around it. That although there's more to holiness than sexual purity, it's still a big part. And he says that you would be holy and blameless. Uh, Jude, verse 24, said God is able to present us blameless, without fault. And then adds these words, says Paul, above reproach. What that means is that there is nothing scandalous about our lives. There was a scandal in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, Paul had to declare a man uh, to Satan. He, He was delivered to Satan. It was a man who, a member of the church, Paul assumes he was saved, there's no question about that, and yet was living with his father's wife, his stepmother, and said even the Gentiles don't do that. It was such a sin that it became a scandal in Corinth, and you can be sure that the people in Corinth were talking about it. It was an embarrassment to the church. You see, when there is a scandal in the church, when a person of high profile gets involved in financial misdealings or sexual activity, outside marriage, and that word leaks out, the world loves it. Oh, BBC and Sky TV with their cameras, they wanted to interview, they relish something like that. And that's why Paul is saying to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. It's just a reminder that those of us who are part of Kensington Temple, whether you get a high profile, being on the staff, or if you're a member, do you realize, I'm sorry, but there are probably Christians in Britain who look down on you because you're Pentecostal. Uh, That's just the way it's been for years. And... uh, Therefore, if they find out that somebody here is living in any measure of immorality, you see, people will take advantage of that. And when you are being watched and you are considered an outsider by some, it's all the more important that we live lives that bring glory to God. Well, now, what is Paul's point? Well, he has shown the promise that the universe will be reconciled, but also the death of Christ qualifies for our inheritance. So what qualifies us? Four things. Holiness, sexual purity, blamelessness, so that no one can find a fault in us. Doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean that, but that there's no scandal. No one can can point out anything that would be embarrassing without reproach or scandal uh, in our lives. And then he adds this, you may wish it weren't here, but it's perseverance. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So here's the question to run by you again, so there's no misunderstanding. These four things that I've just listed, holiness, blamelessness, without reproach, and perseverance. Are these four things required for glorification? The answer is no, thank God. You see, glorification takes place at death. Or at the second coming, uh, no preparation needed. Romans 8:30: Whom he predestined, he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. What happens uh, to be necessary for glorification? that you're justified. But who gets justified? Those who are called. Who are called? those who are predestined. And so, if you are predestined, you're going to be called. And if you're called, you're going to be justified. And if you're justified, you're going to be glorified. This is something that you can be sure of. Uh, Nothing will stop that. Uh, Glorification is out of our hands. And so, Paul is not saying, do these things in order to be glorified. He is saying, do these things to come into receiving a reward at the judgment seat of Christ because Paul wanted to be so proud of these Colossians that before God and the angels in the world, they would be presented as people who did not bring any reproach upon the gospel. And uh, we have a taste of it now in that we come into a partaking of the inheritance of the saints in light but to get Christ well done, it means perseverance. That's why he says, if you continue. If that reference to inheritance had not been here, just four or five verses above, uh, you might think, well, you've got to do these things in order to get into heaven. Continue in faith, he says. Be firm, stable, loyal, steadfast, uh, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Why does he say that? It's because some do shift. I wonder if you've ever noticed this. This may shock you. In Colossians chapter 4, he sends uh, greetings from different people as he closes his letter. And he says, Luke, the beloved physician, physician, greets you as does Demas. Now, we at that time wouldn't know uh, that Paul later on is going to refer to Demas in a different epistle. But here at this moment, two people, they're all part of a family, close to each other. Uh, No one questions their reliability, their conversion, that they love God. Imagine being right alongside Luke. Do you know who Luke was? He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts, and alongside a man by the name of Demas. And so it, it was a part of a family. We just know one another. If I just uh, I wrote a letter and I say, Amanda says hello, and Gabriel says hello, uh, but we're all together. And you would just take that for granted. But sadly, we don't know how long afterwards, some would think, maybe five years, maybe six years, we don't know. In Paul's last letter, he said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. You see, this can happen. No one questioned whether he was converted, but Paul had to say this. He doesn't say, it shows he was never converted. No, there's no question about that. But it's just letting you know that those who write in the middle of things, in the middle of the godliest group of people, uh, what can happen is, and it can happen to any of us, any of us. Paul knew it could happen to him. That's why he wrote and said to the Corinthians, I keep my body under, lest having preached to others, I should be rejected for the prize. I was thinking today, an old friend When I was at Trevecca, Nazarene University in Nashville, Tennessee, years ago, uh, a very good friend, I will call him Paul Hendon. He was a godly man, probably the brightest, most brilliant man I ever met. He was good at physics, math, spoke several languages, he would have times when he would pray for hours. I could see him out in a field just walking and and praying and worshiping God. No one questioned him. And yet, he once said to me, I wonder if people will discover my gift. He was afraid he would not be known. He wasn't uh, popular. He was an introvert, a, a bit odd. And probably didn't have a preaching gift. And he got discouraged. And uh, the next thing I he knew, he'd started smoking. Now, that's not the worst sin in the world. But for a Nazarene, that's the hint that you're backslidden. And he never was restored. He died. He didn't finish well. This same man, he's the one who introduced me to C.S. Lewis and other writers, same man, I was close to him, died, having loved this present world. So Paul is not talking about glorification. So what is the requirement for glorification, you ask? Well, the good news is when you come to the place that you see yourself as lost and you recognize that you have been hostile to God. And against anything that's in Scripture, you don't love the Bible. It means nothing to you, but you're convicted. And you suddenly see yourself as a sinner. This is something that has to take place. This is called being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And you realize that there is someone who took your place on the cross He lived a perfect life in your behalf. He did it for you. He was your substitute, not only on the cross, but by his perfect life. And then when he died on the cross, all of our sins were put on him as though he were guilty. Think of your sins that you would not want anybody to know about. They were transferred to Jesus as though he were guilty. And then what happens is that when we trust the blood of Jesus, are you ready for this? The perfect life he lived is now put to your credit as though you lived the perfect life. And this is part of reconciliation. It's what we mean by justification, just before God because the blood of Jesus satisfied God's justice And when you give up hope in your good works and put all of your eggs into one basket, the death of Jesus Christ, when you do that, you're given a free pardon and you will go to heaven when you die. Here's what Paul said to the Ephesians. And remember Ephesians and Colossians, they wrote, they were written within months of each other, maybe days. Uh, Colossae, just 20 miles from Ephesus. And Paul, while he had all these things under his mind, writes to Colossae. And in Ephesians, he put it like this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Then the next verse is, we are his workmanship. And that's what Paul is after. But you see, one needs to be told these things if a person, just because they're converted, automatically just live a righteous life, uh, we wouldn't need the New Testament. You see, Paul wrote these letters to instruct people. Uh, There was a man uh, who was converted by Philip in the desert. He was the Ethiopian eunuch. He was truly converted, but then suddenly Philip is just taken away. No follow-up at all. We don't know whatever happened to him. But the reason we've got the New Testament why you need the Bible is we need instructions. And so the good news is that we will be glorified. Uh, But then Paul says, here's what happens. We're reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He wants to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. If indeed you continue, if you continue, and he's talking now, about coming in to your inheritance, which is a reward, they used interchangeably, and you will have a reward. And according to two Peter chapter one verse eleven, you have an abundant entrance into the kingdom. And this is happened. What what happens when you die? You know, I, I received a letter um, this week from somebody in America. And she had believed my teaching, it's not mine, it's because I've got a book on it and she called it my teaching about once saved, always saved. And then heard her pastor say, uh, if you gossip or if there's any unforgiveness and you die, you will go to hell. And she was all troubled and she says, I don't know now if I'm going to make it. Uh, thank God that those things are not a qualification for getting you to heaven. I, I remember going to a church uh, a few years ago. I, I don't want to name the church uh, because it, it, it became famous at the, at the time, but uh, we'd heard that revival had broken out and, and uh, Louise and I went and, to hear the preaching. And the preacher said, among other things, if you've had a Budweiser in the last six weeks, you'll go to hell if you don't come to the altar tonight. Well, they, I don't know how many were drinking Budweiser, but they really went forward. I'm not making a commercial for Budweiser, by the way. But it goes to show how if you push it too far, as if Paul is wanting you to be wholly blameless, so maybe God won't have his work much to do, for you, to glorify you. You'll be helping him out a little bit and then he'll just push you over. No, glorification will be a supernatural act. God will do it to those who have trusted the blood of Jesus. But then there is this, that Paul wanted these Colossians to be presented in such a manner that they would hear from the words of Jesus, well done. And that is what he is after. And I wanted to say these things. I don't know about you, I want a reward. When I face God, I've had people say to me, R.T., I don't care if I don't get a reward, I just want to make it to heaven. My reply is, you won't feel that way then. I can assure you. And I want to be welcomed home Not because I'm perfect. If you think I'm perfect, interview Louise. (laughs) If you can get her to talk. I've actually shut her up and she promised that she wouldn't tell you what she knows about me. Uh, I can tell you now, if you knew me, you'd be amazed that God has used me as he does. I'm here by the sheer grace of God, but I long to live a life. And this is what Paul was trying to do. That I could be presented before God, knowing I'm going to go to heaven, but to hear, well done, good and faithful servant.